Cincinnati's own Joe Burrow. He might be heading towards marriage. Good for you, Joe. Get a prenup because you don't really know the motives of the person that's coming into your life. He came to the table with a whole bunch of goodies. I, I, I kind of like the story of Pat Mahomes, which is he married his high school or I think even junior high sweetheart. So they've been together through very, very lean times and you tend to trust that relationship a little bit more like she wasn't gold digging in eighth grade. That's not the case with Joe. Joe, Joe is rather loaded. And so it seems reasonable that he would have a prenup. If I was discipling Joe, he's like, I just want to follow Jesus. And I just think this girl really wants Jesus as well. And should I have a prenup? I want to be wise. I probably wouldn't, Mark. I probably would say your heart needs to be one, full of faith. Two, you need to give everything toward this marriage. And if you're giving everything to her, then that would, that would mean I'm not trying to hedge my bets against what, what you might do to me. And this is Abraham's wallet. Join us weekly and create a culture in your family of multi-generational prosperity, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually, and financially. Run your home, your dough, like a biblical boss. You might be aware that last week, Mark and I did our first episode in five years on divorce. And uh, that episode was just laying out the biblical argument. What are the statutes around divorce that we are supposed to follow as believers? And what you're going to hear this week um, is just the financial implications around divorce. And one of the reasons that we waited so long to do divorce is because there's so much talk around it that really, you really have to, if you want to do it justice, you need to do a lot of talk around it. So we did that one episode that was just about the biblical basis we're doing an episode this week that's about the financial implications. And then we will later talk about what do I do? What, what do I do with all of the chewy messiness around divorce? So I wanted you to understand that uh, that's how we're kind of laying this out. And also, I know the audio is not perfect this week. I apologize for that. Mark, happy my birthday week. How did it go at your house? Good. We celebrated Stephen Manuel Day. Um, we all dressed up. We went and uh, went door to door, and at every house, we said Stephen Manuel, and some of them yeah. gave candy. Um, so it was good. I, how, how's the birthday week going for you? Here's a question: Is it immoral to for Christians to celebrate Halloween? No. Next question. It's it's always kind of fun at my house, uh, and and also I, I I won't be sad when the when the like the age of trick or treating is over at my house, which we're we're probably only a couple years away from that being the case, because then we can get back to focusing on me, which is the way that it should be at Halloween. So I will say you asked if it's it's immoral and. I kind of roll my eyes at that whole debate, whatever. But what I might say maybe was immoral was you and your wife, you 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 did a Taylor Swift costume. And I just don't know. I, I don't feel great about that, Steve. Well, Ephesians 5 says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there are roles in a marriage, but there are times when you shrug your shoulders and you say, Wife, I'm going to let you lead on this one, and this is this was her this was her dream. So I followed it through because it didn't make me look too dorky. I got to wear a sports outfit, so that you know that's I was okay with it. Okay, okay, I'm just teasing. I don't really have a strong strong moral judgment on your Halloween costume. Now, my next question is: What has been the fallout of the? Um, I'm going to say that it's controversial, although the, our, our people haven't really given us any guff about it. But what about the controversial divorce episode? What's been the fallout? I would say that my wife and I have kicked around that topic all week and just been saying, well, what about this scenario? How would you counsel? You do it? So 
we've been having those conversations, uh, not about whether we should divorce. Oh, 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 oh. just the concept. Uh, I, I yeah, yeah, pastoral questions. Uh, I see, I see. I would say... You know, there were things that you laid out in in the last podcast we did on the topic that um, weren't exactly aligned with things that, for example, one of my pastors and I have talked about that are his kind of opinions on some of these passages. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was hanging out with him this week and he was like, well, I really thought that was excellent. And I said, but I know there's places that you might disagree with our interpretations. And he, he sort of said, well, yeah, let's hash it up. But we haven't had a chance to do that yet. Uh, mm. So uh, I'm looking forward to m- more of that as well, which is more of just the let's chop the, the Bible passages up and make sure that we've thought, thought well through all of those. I have yet to have an angry fist shaken in my face, though, and said, how dare you say that? So I'm sure that those have those fists have been shaken virtually at us. Um, I just haven't received it yet. Yeah. The, the thing that makes me sad, I'll just say this in absence of much, much fist shaking. It makes me sad to consider probably the reality, which is that we probably have listeners who hang their head sadly thinking those guys are so wrong but they're not going to engage for fear of being browbeaten or uh, shouted down by us, which makes me very sad. And I would just like to say uh, my presumption is that uh, just like yourself, Mark, that there are maybe hundreds of people out there for whom they've never heard things laid out quite that way before, and they have some uh, challenges to it. And I just want to say one last time, we would welcome those challenges. I'm happy to engage. And if uh, your pastor or anybody else says, we don't see it that way, you know, what, what's kind of cool to imagine about your pastor, I presume this is his um, posture, is that we can disagree on how to interpret the scriptures as long as the scriptures are our authority. And we can go, well, I think this scripture means this because of this other scripture over here. And you can go, well, I think it means this because of this other scripture. You know, the conversation about predestination is much like that, which I think is wonderful because what we're really arguing at the end of the day isn't our preference. It's what what does the word of God say? So I just I just want to throw that out one last time to say we welcome challenges. We had we had some questions on the um on the AWHQ, and they were really about clarification, not not really how dare you guys, but but how dare you guys wouldn't hurt my feelings. If anybody wants to say that, speak up. We're going we're going one step further into the the divorce yeah. milieu. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go down the rabbit hole, and we know that there are good God fearing people that are at every stage of the whole divorce issue. And I have walked with friends down the road of, I think it's pretty certain that my wife is going to divorce me. What do I do? And I'm trying to give counsel, oh, well, try to be gracious. And well, that's not going to change anything. This is happening. And so you have to counsel people. Punch them in the face, right? Well, I have had friends who they said, I am bringing the divorce. And you punch those guys in the face and you show up at midnight and you hound them and bother them well, he's ghosting me on Facebook. Well, then go find him. Go find his address. You know, let's get serious. Marriages really, really, really count. They really matter. So if it's a a bro of mine who's like, I'm so put out with this woman, then you get up in his face. And I have done that before and felt, uh, felt, as you've said, very loving in doing that. Then I've got had friends who this is being done to them and there's nothing they can do about it. Okay, well, Mm -hmm. you got to, Okay, give me some counsel. What should I be doing financially while that's happening? Then you come across somebody who they've been divorced. They're living all alone and they're trying to support their family. I have friends right now who find themselves trying to shuffle children all over and pay for college uh, college bills, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, 
I'm, I'm trying to make meals happen for my kids that are at home. I'm trying to support kids that are off at school and I'm a single parent and I'm, I know it wasn't supposed to be, this wasn't the plan, but here I am. Can you give me some advice? And then we have friends who are going like, we're, we're going to get married. We found someone. This is a second marriage. I, I, I'm, I feel that I'm in gray territory morally here, but I don't know what else to do. Should the rest of my life be a sad memorial to the failed marriage? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that except to go like, I, you know what? Let's all just be wise as we proceed. And so we, there's all sorts of stages along the way. And you're going to talk us through a lot of those financial and practical considerations. I just want to say this before I throw the uh, spotlight well and truly in your corner, Mark. And that is, there's ultimately, our good friend Michael Shields told, told us this years ago, there's well and truly one reason that divorces happen. You ready? Unforgiveness. That's why divorces happen. And so if you're in the teeth of really trying times in your marriage, you, you kind of worry. It's an unspoken fear. Is divorce around the bend for us? What's going to happen? Or maybe you're, maybe it's already happened. There's no, you know, my wife left me and she's already married someone else. It's not going to happen that we're going to get back together. Here I sit. I would like to recommend so strongly to everyone that you put significant time towards forgiveness. That's a major issue in any marriage certainly in one where there's a lot of trial and a lot of conflict. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that God, I'm going to try to summarize this, uh, this parable that Michael O'Shields called the terrible parable at the end of Matthew 18. And this, the summary of the parable is, if, if we don't walk forward in forgiveness, however costly that might feel to us, God won't deal with us. He simply won't. He put he he stiff arms us. The scripture says that he turns us over to tormentors. Hello, that's a pretty scary Bible phrase. He turns us over to tormentors and there we sit. And I know so many people who because of uh, painful marriages, they're tormented regularly. And I know it's hard and I know it feels like unfair. And I know that it feels like, well, I'm all doing all the sacrificing while the other person gets off scot-free, but you have to walk in forgiveness. So my little spiritual pastoral advice is to do whatever you must do to be free in the name of forgiveness, to set the other pe person free. They don't owe me anything. God, I'm going to release them to you. You deal with them. I just have, I just have to walk in forgiveness. So that's my, that's my little two cents about anybody that's in all of the roiling waters of divorce talks. And then now we're going to throw it over to you. And I want you to, to uh, give us some practical advice about people going through all different shades of divorce and divorce talks. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of try to hit two things here. One is the rending that happens financially when two people who became one in God's eyes, um, break apart and all of their financial affairs and money and everything are intertwined. And now we have to split those up. What kind of stuff happens and what are the implications for that? Um, that's more probably something that you're thinking about if you're in that spot of, I think this might happen to me and I don't think there's anything I can do about it. I know that's true. That happens. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, and then the other is, well, I'm already divorced. I the the money has been split up. The court orders have been issued on who's paying who, different amounts of alimony and child support and all that jazz. How do we sort of navigate some of the issues that come with maybe a blended family or with children or remarriage or any of that stuff? Um, but before I do that, <laughs> one of the reasons why a lot of these these questions on how you split assets is so difficult is because we tend to not enter marriage with clear laid out. If this doesn't work out, here's what we're going to do. That would be a prenuptial agreement. Um, yep. And before we started recording, you said something that makes me think you and I might have very different sort of initial views on 
when should somebody consider this type of thing? Is it okay? Is it godly um, to have that type of agreement in place? Um, it was kind of a viral topic this week on social media. There was a bunch of famous people talking about prenups. Um, and so I'm just curious. I, I don't I don't know that I have deep conviction here, but I have an opinion. So when you think about should a, should a Jesus follower who's preparing to enter into marriage have a document that says this is how we will split up our stuff if we decide to break this covenant? Is that a Christ-like uh, thing to do or no? I mentioned Cincinnati's own Joe Burrow, who I, I, we hear through the grapevine, through my wedding planner wife, that he might be heading towards marriage. Good for you, Joe. Um, and I just said, for somebody in his position, but I would think as a friend, I would say, Joe, get a prenup because you don't really know the motives of the person that's coming into your life. He came to the table with a whole bunch of goodies. I, I, I kind of like the story of uh, Pat Mahomes, which is he married his high school or I think even junior high sweetheart. So they've been together through very, very lean times. And you tend to trust that relationship a little bit more. Like she wasn't gold digging in eighth grade. She didn't know what she had in Mr. Mahomes. That's not the case with Joe. Joe, Joe is rather loaded. And so it seems reasonable that he would have a prenup. Now, is that the, if I was discipling Joe, he's like, I just want to follow Jesus. And I just think this girl really wants Jesus as well. And should I have a prenup? I want to be wise. I probably wouldn't, Mark. I probably would say your heart needs to be one full of faith. Two, you need to give everything toward this marriage. And if you're giving everything to her, then that would that would mean I'm not trying to hedge my bets against what what you might do to me. Sure. I think that I always say when, if, when I perform marriages, when people are walking down the aisle, that's what they're saying is that you can you can more or less rob me blind because I'm giving everything to you. So I like that stance. Okay. Yeah. I, I have, I guess, three different thoughts on this. One is there's this guy I follow on Twitter named Brad Wilcox, and he has written a book on kind of marriage statistics. He's a very pro-marriage guy and has written a book on all sorts of statistics. And one of them that he has come out with is husbands and wives with a prenup in place uh, express lower levels of commitment happiness and confidence in the future of their marriage. Now, totally chicken or egg for sure. Who knows if that's because a lot of people who would sort of at the front end of a marriage say, this is how we're dividing it up. Well, they've already expressed that we have some, some concern that this isn't going to be a, a going concern. So there's, there's that. Um, but it's kind of for me like what you said. I feel like a prenup is is kind of like you know saying you might lose half your money uh, if this doesn't work out. I'm thinking that's kind of like telling me you know we're going to slowly torture you to death uh, and and tear your body in half. And don't you want if that happens, don't you want to know that your money is going to be okay? I'd kind of be like, well, I, that feels like almost an afterthought in light of the, the thing that you're saying might happen to me. Um, I'd be like, maybe that's okay, but sort of also who cares? Like I'm so getting ripped in half by that process that the money almost seems inconsequential. Um, so it goes back to what I said last time we were talking divorce, which was that if you're entering into marriage with that mentality of this is a unbreakable in the eyes of God covenant I'm making, um, then I kind of feel like, well, what does it matter? What happens to my money? You might, I might lose half my money. I know a lot of men get hosed in our country right now in divorce financially. Um, yeah. and a lot of those guys did not see it coming in any way. Uh, so I don't have strong convictions here, but that's the way I think about it. 
the one place I would caveat that is I would say if we're talking second marriage, um, we're already in the territory here of we're trying to put some broken things together. Um, and so it's often necessary to use legal legal tools uh, like a prenup to mitigate the damages that have already been caused by this spiritual or covenantal fracture that happened. So we're in different territory, in my mind, in a second marriage or a marriage where there's children and all that than we are if we're talking, we're starting out a family together from scratch. Totally agree. I was, I was going to make that exact point, which is if you're moving forward in innocence, you're two single people. Why don't we go ahead and dream and say we're two virgins? Because we know that premarital sex also increases the uh, possibility of divorce. But if you're two single people, you, you want to sign your life on the dotted line and say, I'm all in. I'm jumping all in here. But if even if you haven't been married before, but you have children that you're caring for, well, it kind of, like you say, kind of the second marriage scenario, it does make more sense for there to be a prenup in place to go, I love you, I have the best intentions, but no matter what happens, I have to take care of these kids. So I have a little bit more understanding for that scenario as well. Yeah. When divorce happens, what even happens to somebody's financial life. I'm going to put a huge asterisk on this whole thing and say, I'm not an attorney. I don't, I don't know the laws in every state and they're all different. So this varies widely from state to state. Um, and there's places that are just better or worse for people. And, um, I'm not going to go into that. I'll just tell you that there's two big frameworks for how property inside of a marriage is viewed. You've heard of them called like community property or separate property. You know, Utah, where I live, is uh, is a state that uses what's called an equitable division of assets uh, approach to the law, which says... um, Assets that are that are are owned by a married couple, if that couple divorces, they will not necessarily be split 50-50 down the middle. Instead, the court's going to consider a bunch of factors like the length of the marriage, the health of each spouse, the occupation of each spouse, special needs, etc. to decide a fair division of resources. Um, so that is the most common um, method that's used by states. 41 out of 50 states use this equitable division approach when there's a divorce. The other method that's used in some big states like Texas and California is the community property method. And this assumes that marital assets are all owned 50-50 unless they're deemed by the court as separate property, um, which would usually be something that's clearly brought into the marriage. Like before we were married, you know, you had this asset, you had this house, or before we we were married, you got an inheritance. Um, And so that would be generally a little bit more of a clear cut. Um, But that can also hose somebody if let's say there was a marriage that was on the outs for a long time and somebody built a super successful business, um, they could could end up uh, getting that split 50-50, even though they really built it on their own and the other person doesn't have great need or ability to own it going forward. Right. Um, so that's kind of how assets get divided. There's some things that, that are specific to individual types of accounts. So there's something called a quadro that I do deal with, uh, pretty frequently, which is a qualified domestic relations order. So you might think, well, I might have to split up the money in my checking account, but I'll be okay because I've built this big 401k while my wife stayed home all day and just, you know, drank Chardonnay or whatever she was doing because our marriage wasn't great. Um, but no, <laughs> the court is going to do to your 401k what they're going to do to everything else and more or less cut it in half and creates uh, an entity called a quadro, which they're going to stick half of it in. And that becomes basically the way they can take an individual account, divide it into and keep it as a qualified retirement account. So 
401ks, IRAs, things like that, those get split up when there's a divorce. Most, most generally that happens. Um, a lot of this stuff is subject to negotiation. So you can have a deal that says, well, you keep the house and I'll keep the 401k and we'll call it good. That's all subject to the approval of the courts. But generally, uh, those things can happen. So there's a lot of negotiating that happens here. Um, and another big one that a lot of, of people, if they've been in a marriage where there was one breadwinner, um, think about is, well, how am I supposed to support children if I've been staying home? Um, and either arbitration or the courts, they're going to look at a whole host of factors here, not just income, but expenses associated with raising children. You know, does one parent now need to pay for daycare because they're going to have to go to work? Um, what are the sources of income for both parents? And they're going to try to find all of your income. So, if you've got, you know, investments and pensions and business income, all of that goes into the pot. How much time does the kids spend with each parent? Uh, how old are the kids? This is going to be very different if they're two than if they're 16. Um, and these, these things all go into the mix and the courts say, we have decided how much child support is going to be paid and by whom. Um, and so that, that is a big component for most people when there's kids involved in splitting a family into two separate financial entities is the court doesn't just say, I hope you take care of your kids. They will say, here's how much of your money you will be sending to the other person um, to take care of those kids. Uh, it's, it's sad to even think about. Do you have advice for somebody who is, is, the, is the put upon party? in in a divorce i'm not saying that either one is innocent but they if they had their druthers there would not be divorce it's happening to them what are your thoughts on in the middle of the divorce negotiating should they grab and claw and kick to try to get half or whatever or should they just hang their head and go whatever it doesn't really matter just take whatever you want there was a spouse that was abandoning another spouse and saying, I'm trying to get out of my obligations to take care of my kids. To, like, And in that case, practically speaking, I said, well, those kids need to still you know, be educated and be cared for and all that. And I think you should hire a fantastic lawyer and make it clear that you're going down to the mat with that person and you're either going to spend all their money on legal fees or they can use it to support their children. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel pretty much like that's a righteous move in the case of somebody who's intending to walk away from their obligations to their family. I would say like, try to knock their financial teeth out if you can in that scenario. I think that the questions that, that kind of involve how you're going to do post-divorce financial life, also, they do go way beyond just what the court tells you you have to do. Um, So how are you going to approach paying for the things that happen beyond your children's 18th birthday? Uh, One of those things that tends to be a huge expense that we plan for with almost every client that we do financial planning for is higher education expenses. So um, the courts are not going to force anyone to say, well, once this kid's 21, you're still going to need to pay for college. Um, so either party could just bip out of that obligation. Um, and you know, there's other questions like we've talked about 529 savings plans. A lot of families, they're diligently putting money away for college. Well, all states allow the, the owner of a 529 plan to be changed in the event of a divorce. So if it's, let's say it's an amicable split, I don't know even how I feel about that term, but most of the time they'll change it to the the owner, to the parent who provides less support because then that fa- that 529 plan becomes invisible to the FAFSA and it doesn't get included when the kid goes to college in their kind of application for aid. Um, 
And if, if parents are divorced and living apart, only one of them is required to fill out that FAFSA and it has to be the one who provides, it has to be the one who provides the greater financial support to the child, regardless of who the kid lives with. Um, but you know, if the parent who owns the 529 plan, so let's say dad provides all the support, but kids live with mom. And so the, the agreement says, let's, let's give the 529 to mom and the parents get divorced. Um, and mom gets remarried and has another child. Well, we've talked about it before when we talked about 529 plans, but that plan can now be, she is allowed to change the beneficiary of the plan because she's the owner. She can change it to the other kid and say to dad, yeah, you're going to have to cough up more money if you want your kid to go to college. So it's, uh, this is one of those things that can actually be specified in a prenuptial agreement that says existing 529 plans, um, have to remain assets of their respective owners to preserve assets for beneficiaries. And again, I go back to, it all gets really complicated when we start involving more than just two people. Uh, And as gross as it is to imagine people doing these things to each other and their kids happens every day. So, yeah. But I'm I'm describing somebody trying to screw somebody out of, I guess, effectively screwing their own children out of a 529 plan. I'm just thinking of this. It's just like Moses's, um, you know, policy he wrote for the divorce happy culture, which is we are so far off of God's plan at this at this point. It's just like, what can we cobble together that's workable? Because we're so far, uh, you know, out into the void from what God intended for family. But that's that doesn't mean you don't have to make these decisions. They're real. Yeah. Um just a couple other things that I wanted to mention. If you have recently experienced divorce, you are going to have to start thinking about things like what happens to my tax bill now, because I'm going to go from married filing jointly to an individual tax return. So if you made a ton of money and you were the breadwinner, now you go from maybe I made $300,000 a year, but that put me in a certain tax bracket because I was a family and I was getting the tax rates for a married filing jointly tax return. Now I'm an individual and that puts me in a totally different tax bracket. Um, Or maybe I used to be able to make Roth contributions because I made under $200,000. But now as an individual, I make that much and I can't make Roth contributions anymore. So there's things that change about your tax situation when you go from... Mm -hmm. Uh, married filing jointly to individuals. This is a hard one too for people who lose a spouse. You know, they get one year in which they can file a joint tax return after a spouse passes away. But after that, it's like maybe they've been really successful and they've built a big retirement account and it was okay from a tax standpoint. But the tax bill feels a lot different when I suddenly have to take all that income as an individual because my tax brackets are very different. So um, that's a consideration. Um, the last thing I'd mention is credit score. A lot of times we see families where one person built most of the credit history and maybe they didn't think about this, but the, when they got a loan, they just said, well, you get the, you make all the money. So you get the loan. Uh, and the other person might not have a great credit score or might have very limited credit history. And that's something you're going to have to tackle is if that's you, how do you build some credit history so that, at some point, maybe you can buy a house or borrow to, to purchase a car, or some of those things. So lots of, like I said, rending that happens, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not lost on me that when you tear a, a marriage apart like this, there's a lot of just blood and guts financially that spill out and it's not pretty and it's difficult. So, um, all these things. Yeah. Are- so it, it, not everybody's in the scenario of having to rebuild credit after a divorce, but everybody is in the situation of having to build your credits, credit score at some point in your life. The first thing I would do is go to the credit reporting agencies 
and pull your free credit report once a year, you can go to freeannualcreditreport.com or something. If you Google free annual credit report, you are entitled to pull that for free once a year and you can just see what is your credit score, what's on my credit report. If you see that you have no credit history, you're going to have to start from the ground up and there's services that will actually allow you to sign up and report rent payments and build your credit through just paying rent. There's credit cards that are designed specifically for people with no credit history and they have like a $300 spending limit, but you start there and then they bump it up to $500 and then they bump it up to a thousand and then you graduate to a real credit card and start building history that way. There are so many people that get that have bad credit because they owe $18 here and they owe $37 there. If you pull your credit report, you'll see outstanding um, outstanding bills that uh, d- creditors are trying to chase you down on. Pay them, pay them. The, the, the only way to build your credit score is to borrow money and pay it back. So literally, if you have a if you have a credit card and you put twenty dollars a month on it and you pay it out, you get it back to zero. You're you're demonstrating I can borrow money and I pay it back. And if you'll simply do that, bum 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 goes the credit score and it goes up and up and up. Okay, there's probably not a ton of people listening that are in the throes of the actual divorce proceedings, uh, and this is where, frankly, I think there's as much sort of wisdom questions as financial questions, but how do you deal with the aftermath of divorce? So what if I now am remarried and I've got kids uh, with a new spouse and I have kids from a previous marriage? What are the money things? What are the implications of that? What if I'm a child and my parents have gotten remarried? What does that mean for family wealth? Does it mean that I just kiss it goodbye? Does it, you know, do I need to be yeah. snuggling up to the the new step parents or what? Right. Um, so there's some questions there that I'm sure there's infinite questions about how to deal with the intricacies of blended family. But I thought we'd, we'd talk a little bit about that. Okay, go. Well, what if I want to support my children from a previous marriage and the, uh, <laughs> That, that impedes on my ability to do the normal things that I would do in my second marriage, my family that exists now. Um, and I guess I would say, ideally, this conversation happens before the, the marriage is entered into. Um, and I think that looks like sort of being extraordinarily clear on, hey, marrying me means that a sizable chunk of our combined income will support children who may not even live with me. Uh, And if you aren't okay with that, we aren't going to be joining our lives together financially or otherwise. I think that's ideal. Um, Now, if you found yourself in that spot and didn't have that clarity beforehand, I'm curious, Steve, what do you think the move is? Uh, Because I understand that somebody could easily say, well, I don't really like that a big chunk of my money is going to support the kids you had with someone else. Well, you know, that that's a pretty natural human response. You know, as a pastor and counselor, I feel like one of my responsibilities is to tell people the truth because so many people around our lives won't tell us the truth or they're so interested in being liked and approved of that they won't tell us things that we don't want to hear, even if they're true. And uh, so I always feel this super obligation if somebody has presented their life to me openly, I have to love them enough to go, look, I don't know how many other people you're going to talk to about this, but I've got to shoot you straight. And my feeling is that if you marry someone, you've entered into covenant with them, you're taking on all of their existing obligations. That doesn't mean you have to do false or contrived stuff, you know. I decided I would drive to Alaska every weekend to see my great aunt, and I have to continue to do that. Uh, we need to talk about that. I don't. I, I don't think that's reasonable. But if it's, I, I'm going to support my children. I have children. They're, they've come from my own body. I am obligated to them under God. 
Well, then, yeah, we have to say, if I'm joining my life to you, if I'm marrying you, I'm also marrying your obligations. Now, a very low level of that thing would be, I married my wife, she had student debt, and she had credit card debt when I married her. Well, I can't say that's your problem. I've now married you. It's my problem. So we had to we had to uh, gird up our loins and tighten our belts and go, uh, we're dealing with that now. Um, that's a low level deal is that when you marry somebody, you take on their their financial obligations. A very high level is we're also taking on all of their relational obligations. Um, that is to parents, uh, parents who are needing end of life care. That is children that aren't living with you. All of that stuff, it might not be uh, fun or what you desire, but we have to honor the obligations and the covenants that come into our marriage. That that seems pretty cut and dried to me. Yeah. And what I would say is it is optional. You do not have to enter yeah. into covenant in this yeah. way. And I've, you and I have both talked to people where we said, you know, you think that this is the person and I'm not, I'm not even thinking of a second marriage. I'm thinking of a first one. And then you found out, oh my goodness, they have $350,000 of debt. And I've known people, I'm not saying it was wise or not wise, who have said, I'm not going down that road. Um, I've known people who were very interested in marrying someone and then saw the jacked up family dynamics and said, I don't think I can be a part of that family. Um, again, I'm not saying that you should you should X somebody off of your marriage list because of financial problems. Like most of the time, those can actually be dealt with. But I'm also yeah. saying no one's going to look at somebody that says, well, I did not want to take that on and say, well, you had to. Uh, no, it's an optional. Entering into marriage covenant is optional. You aren't required to do it. So um, I would just sort of say, walk into this with your eyes open and then kind of be an adult and say, I walked into this knowingly. Um, And on the other hand, make sure, like I said on point one, make sure you talk about this before you get married. This is not conversations to have in your first year of marriage. It's conversations to have before you get married. Probably the most tricky area here, I would say, is in the kind of estate planning zone. Last time we were talking about divorce, you said that this this is how you completely screw multi-generational family, is to throw divorce into the baby family tree that's trying to branch out and build your generations. You throw a divorce in there. You're you're really doing damage to the the likelihood that that tree is going to thrive and branch like it would have. Um, yes. So, I will say, blended families or um, remarriages, things like that, they can throw a big wrench into multi generational wealth building. I'd say that ninety ninety percent of the time, when children come from a blended family. And I'm just talking to the children, so I don't have maybe any relationship with the the parents. Um, they tend to need to plan the, on starting over when it comes to building multi generational wealth. So that doesn't have to be true. There are ways to do this that don't squash multi generational wealth, but it's difficult to navigate the pitfalls here when there's a blended family situation, remarriages and stuff. People just die without having done any significant estate planning and all assets move from the first to die to the second spouse to die. And that might be exactly what you want, but often in this this situation where there's been divorce, often that isn't exactly what you want. Wasn't Anna Nicole Smith, didn't she marry like a uber bazillionaire and it was all in the news and he died like very shortly after they got married and had no estate planning. So everything just went to her. That's kind of the gross, obscene example of this. You can imagine that if if there's a second marriage, this doesn't even have to be the result of divorce. This could be, hey, my, my dad died and my mom was 82 years old and she 
fell in love with Buzz at the assisted living center and they got married and then she died and their $10 million they had saved up now belongs to Buzz and Buzz doesn't really have much interest in the multi-generational family vision. Uh, Yes. So what I would say is that the most important thing to do is if this is you, like everybody in a situation where there's divorce or blended family or remarriage of any sort should probably say that it's just a non-negotiable to do some advanced estate planning, meaning we're not just going to write a will and say, we'll call it good there. We're going to talk to an attorney in person about what is the right structure so that the things we desire to happen with our finances actually happen. I'm just going to breeze through a couple things that are common. We'll see what's called a Q-tip trust. Now, are you familiar with a Q-tip, Steve? The ear implement? Yes. Just a little aside, we, we went to a party last week and it was like a marriage game where you had to answer questions about your spouse and you got points if if you said the same thing. One of the questions was very offensive to me. It was, what is the least favorite thing about your spouse's body? And do you know what my wife said? (laughs) Did she say your earwax situation? Yes. Never having mentioned it to me before. Do you know how much I have scrubbed my ears since that day? I mean, there's no earwax to be seen. She, She hurt you. She hurt you. That being said, if her goal was to make sure there was never earwax on my body again, <laughs> mission accomplished. Um, anyways. Well, she outed your earwax situation in front of good friends at a holiday yeah. festival. Ooh. In any case, that's not the type of Q-tip we're talking about here. Um, oh, okay. Okay. A Q-tip trust, there's something called an AB trust. All you need to know is that it basically says that when you die, there's going to be two trusts established an A and a B. And a Q-tip trust provides limited access to one of those trusts. So we kind of call it the trophy wife trust um, in the financial planning world. And the idea is, let's say dad gets remarried to a woman who's much younger than him, and he wants her to have access to some of their assets. Perhaps it's a house for the rest of her life, but he wants all his money effectively to go to his children when she dies. Um, The way that he would set that up is he might use a Q-tip trust, place the house into the marital B trust part of this, and she then gets to live in the house until she no longer needs it. And then when she dies, that trust will be liquidated and sent out to the kids. Um, Now, she's allowed in many cases to sell the house if she wants, but if she sells the house... Basically, the assets inside the trust stay inside the trust. So if she buys another house with that money, that house belongs to the trust. We'll we'll consider her, uh, what's her name? Anna Nicole Smith now is allowed to, she's allowed to withdraw from the trust for what they call HIMSS standards usually. So that's health, education, maintenance, and support. Um, Basically, you can't use it to go... Uh, buy a bunch of Ferraris, but you can use it to do, take care of your basic need. Then when you die, whatever's left in the trust, which is usually a fair bit of the trust, goes to the, to the kids that you had originally hoped that money would go to. Um, so why would you do this? It can be helpful for estate tax planning. I'm not going to go into that, but very, very wealthy people will sometimes do this when they're not in a divorce situation. Like I said, the more common scenario is when there's a desire for a surviving spouse to have access to assets that they aren't going to inherit in the long term. Um, So they want to maybe make sure that the the assets in the family get passed to the kids that they intend them to get passed to and not maybe to the family of the, the new spouse. Having a separate trustee for each spouse's trust can be a very helpful thing for a blended family to do. So one of the big fears that a lot of children have in a blended family situation is that they'll be disinherited. So um, like I said, money, maybe there's already two trusts, but when like my wife and I, we have two trusts and we are both trustees on both trusts. So I can use the money in her trust. She can use the money in my trust. And if I die first, 
all of it is it's still going to be two trusts, but she's going to be the trustee for both trusts as long as she's alive. If you have this situation in a blended family, well, the trustee a surviving spouse could disinherit all the children of the first spouse. So oftentimes what will happen is two trusts, totally, we can dip in both of them while we're alive. But when spouse number one dies, their assets, now a lid gets put on that trust and the trustee is someone else. So that the surviving spouse still can use those, but the trustee has to approve those distributions and would not allow... um, the surviving spouse to say, okay, now that that sucker's dead, I want everything going to my favorite charity and I don't want those kids getting any of it. I think that the the high level takeaway though is I'm guessing that most people are listening to this and going, you're talking about some pretty complex trusts and I don't even know if I have a trust at all. Like if you are in a situation <laughs> where there's any form of what we've been talking about, you should do estate planning. You should do some pretty serious estate planning. It's probably one of the most important things you'll do so that you don't end up in that 90% of the time bucket that I said that your children just go, I guess we're completely starting over and disregarding everything that's come before us financially uh, because of, of what happened. Like There are ways to ensure that, you know, like we said, you may have screwed up on the marriage front. You may have made that mistake. Repentance is available. And you can also still leave an inheritance to your children's children. It All is not lost. You don't have to say, well, because I made this mistake, I'm going to just disregard everything that a parent or a grandparent or kind of a multi-generationally minded person would normally do had I not gotten divorced. Um, we don't think that's wise to just walk away from all of those commands because you uh, experienced the the real <laughs> fracture that is involved in divorce at some time. Great thoughts, Mark. And as you said, some of the stuff you're talking about is so specific, it's not going to apply to everybody. We just wanted kind of a one-stop shop for people who are um, working through any manner of scenarios around divorce happening to you, divorce has happened to you. Uh, just want to give people some tools. We love hearing from people. If you have questions about any of this, I just have to throw out a shout out because here we are in November, that uh, end of year giving. If you're considering what you do with end of year giving, golly, we sure would love it if you would consider Abraham's wallet. We are so grateful for our donors. Our donor list is growing. Um, and we, what we ask of people is would you consider uh, buying us a cup of coffee every month? Would you consider donating five bucks? If you would, to help us make, uh, make Abraham's Wallet happen, you can, you can go to abrahamswallet.com slash donate. Um, or, of course, any amount that you can give at the end of the year, we'd be grateful for. And um, we'll see you next time.